Please be seated. Good evening to you. Second Kings chapter three this evening. And if you're with us this evening without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. Just get their attention by waving to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can follow along with us this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, pick things up in Second Kings chapter three. Just a final reminder, this Saturday is the uh, chili cook-off. So if you want to sign up for some of the different things that are going on, the quilting display and the pie and chili contests and all the other stuff, in addition to uh, buying your tickets, feel free to do that tonight. Just a great, great day of fellowship and good, clean, sanctified fun next Saturday. So flyer available in the information uh, table after the service for more information. Second Kings chapter three. Now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin. Uh, He did not depart from them. So he does kind of a halfway measure and he is evil. I mean, we go through these kings and he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a good king. This one was an evil king. And, uh, you know, we're really not that complicated when the day comes for the Lord to assess our lives. And so this here is another evil king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And evil kings are all that they uh, ever had. The one good thing that he does, and God is fair, uh, uh, you know, it's. You're going to give degrees to evil, but he, he at least notices here in this that uh, that uh, Jehoram takes and he eliminates the worship of Baal, or at least one of the great idols that was used in the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, this great wickedness that was introduced into Israel by his mother Jezebel and encouraged by his father Ahab, he comes in and when he gets a chance to reign, he gets rid of that. The problem is, is that he continues in the calf worship that was introduced by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused all of Israel to sin. There's his tombstone all the way through the Bible. So he does this half measure. It's not enough because what even what he does here still makes him an evil king. And he's going to be confronted for his evil uh, by Elisha. But God does notice uh, even these um, some kind of progress there within uh, within the uh, uh, northern kingdom uh, of Israel. Now, uh, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100, uh, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Wow. This guy's rich. So Omri was the king over Israel when he brought Moab into subjection to Israel. And then as a result of that, began to force them to pay tribute to Israel, to 
So add to the wealth of Israel, which is what conquering people would uh, do. And because what they had in terms of wealth was uh, all of these flocks and all of this wool, this was the annual amount that uh, the king of Mesha was forced to pay to these kings of, uh, of Israel. Following the death of Ahab, as we saw last week, Mesha rebelled against Israel and uh, again testing the resolve of uh, Ahaziah and his willingness to hold them in line to continuing to pay tribute. It was customary in the ancient world to test that resolve to see if you could get out from under this bondage. Given the amount that was being paid, they wanted out from paying this tribute. And uh, Ahaziah did really didn't do anything, uh, in, no retribution against Moab for ceasing to pay the tribute. But now uh, Jehoram becomes king. He takes it personally, thinks that this is kind of an expression of weakness, and he wants to bring Moab back under the thumb of the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And so Jehoram, King Jehoram, he went out of Samaria at that time, and he mustered uh, all of uh, he mustered uh, all of Israel. So he puts a, a large military together from his land. And then he went and he sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he said, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Again, he takes this earlier rebellion personally against his family lineage. Will you go with me to fight against Moab to bring him back in line? And Jehoshaphat said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses as your horses. As I said before, no to all of that. He wasn't at all like uh, this is what he said to Ahab, uh, Je Jehoram's father. So here is Jehoshaphat. They were united together, the two families by marriage. So he probably feels some kind of pressure uh, to align with this evil king and this military expedition. But again, we see that same characteristic in Jehoshaphat. It's a bad characteristic in a child of God of making a decision first and then praying or seeking the Lord related to what to do. The best order is to pray and seek the Lord and then do what it is that he tells us to do. So we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And so we trust that as we read this tonight related to Jehoshaphat, we can look at it and say, yes, that's a conquered area in my life. But if you sit here tonight and you're still making decisions and then when they go sideways, then praying to the Lord and you haven't got that flipped around. Well, you can put yourself in Jehoshaphat's shoes again tonight because he's going to escape uh, death by the skin of his teeth. Again, just like he did when he got out of that battle with with Ahab and was rebuked by the Lord's prophet related to it. But he continues this trend. He was a good king. This was a weakness. He never really addressed in the way that he should pray first and then do what God tells us to do. Listen, I'm just talking to myself here and all of us in the room. And so then he said, which way shall we go up and to initiate this battle against Moab and bring them in line? And he answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. And so Moab sits in modern day Jordan, uh, directly across the Dead Sea from the northern part of the Dead Sea from uh, Israel. 
And uh, right below them uh, on the Jordanian side of modern day Jordan is uh, Edom, which was, was where the ancient kingdom of Edom was. So Moab had defended they, when they were attacked in a military attack, they were almost always attacked from the north. Uh, that was just the way that you would typically do it against them. And so they had they were very strongly defended on the north. It, in this battle, the uh, Israel, Judah and uh, the Edomites are going to join together to fight Moab. So they have an ally in Edom. So with that ally, they decide we will surprise them. We'll come up on uh, against them from the south, which is a weaker area for them and maybe have a little better uh, uh, chance at defeating them. Also, going through Edom, they would be in friendly territory, so they wouldn't have to watch their flank, watch their rear in the military action that they were engaging in. So this was a, a, uh, a special, an a, a unorthodox way of attacking Moab, and we're going to find out why. There's not a lot of water out there to keep an army hydrated and the animals. And so the king of Israel, he went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route for this southern attack seven days. And at the end of the seven days, they ran completely out of water for the army and for the animals that followed them. So they had traveled into the region with water. Uh, they had used all of that up that they had packed in. They had expected to find water somewhere in their wanderings before the attack, and they hadn't uh, found water. And, of course, this is a disastrous situation to be out in uh, kind of a desert area and uh, no water at all. You are a 100 miles away from where you began, and so no chance of turning around and going back. You're all going to die of thirst if you attempt to do that. So they knew all of their lives were in danger and were very, very well aware of the seriousness of the situation. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. This is called chutzpah. Absolute nerve of this guy. He is an evil king. He wants nothing to do with God. His life is not directed by God. He doesn't pray. He doesn't care about God's will. But the first time things go sideways in his life, whose fault is it? It's God's fault. And there's plenty of Joe Rams left around even today. They hate God. They want nothing to do with him. They live their life as they please and and uh, and blaspheme them and all of this. But the second something goes wrong, now they want to talk about God and they want to blame him for the consequences of their decision making and following the God that they follow, which is most often uh, self. And so this regular kind of thing that he does and he's going to blame God. God's doing this because he wants to deliver us into the hand of Moab to be defeated. But Jehoshaphat said, all right, Jehoshaphat. Better late than never. Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So here's the decision. Bad decision. In deep, deep trouble. And then now he decides to pray. Well, better late than never on that. I mean, God does allow U-turns, and I'm thankful for that, as well as uh, Jehoshaphat. And the Lord's really going to step in then 
and uh, and show great grace to Jehoshaphat and bail him out of another pickle that he's put himself in. Maybe God has bailed you out of a situation or two in your Christian life that we didn't deserve. We didn't learn the lesson the first time or the second time. Praise the Lord for his grace. Doesn't give up on us. And so he said, there, is there a prophet that we can inquire of? We, need to, we, we, we don't want to ask any guides. We don't have any collective wisdom here. This situation's so dire. We need the mind of the Lord and we need his direction. So one of the servants of the king of Israel, he answered and he said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He's in the region who poured water on the hands of Elijah. He was Elijah's servant. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, they didn't call for Elisha to come to him. They went to him to go to speak to him. So apparently, I mean, there's no real reason for Elisha to be that far south. It's outside of his stomping grounds. Um, so he was probably down there by the Lord's direction in order to bring about uh, the victory that God wanted to bring out here. And so then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Here you are, you follow all of these false gods, those two golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And then you get into trouble. Why don't you go run to these gods that you follow? Every time you get into trouble, you run to the true and the living God. Doesn't that tell you something about uh, the gods that you serve, that they're unable to deliver you, that you keep coming to the Lord when you find yourself in real trouble? I mean, all this is timeless. This goes on every day all around the world. And, and he should have just said, yeah, you're right. What am I doing? I mean, every time I am in this place, I end up coming to the Lord for the mind of the Lord and for his grace here. Why am I leading the nation into the worship of all of these idols and worshiping them myself? But it doesn't really click for him because he doesn't want it to click. And so the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So he's he's that's my story and I'm holding to it. That's not what God was doing at all. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. Now, this is beautiful. He's way out in the boonies. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And he's standing talking to these three kings. And despite where he's standing, he considers himself to be standing right in the presence of the Lord. They had a book written a number of years ago by uh, Brother Andrew called uh, uh, Practicing the Presence of God. It wasn't Brother Andrew. Who was it, Tom? Was it Brother Andrew that did Practicing the Presence of What is it? Brother Lawrence. There we go. At least I knew it was wrong. And who to turn to. (laughs) So Brother Lawrence. So when you go to look for it. But Practicing the Presence of God. Here he is. He's just walking through life. And I mean, it doesn't matter what happens here or there. He's current in his relationship with the Lord. I mean, he's just ready to hear from the Lord, to be used by the Lord. And so here he is. He's, he's standing. He's, no matter where he is, he's standing right before the Lord. And he said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat for all of his faults, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Now bring me a musician 
And then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So you want a little bit of music. This is a very intense scene, spiritually very demanding scene that Elisha's in the middle of. And so, and a, and a lot is at stake here. And he just wants a little bit of music so his spirit can kind of quiet down and he can receive a revelation from the Lord. Worship music does that. It prepares us for hearing God's voice, quiets us down, quiets our spirit down. And so here's the revelation that he received from the Lord. Now, given the fact that the king of Israel is such a wicked man, and all you think to yourself, why in the world is God going to give a victory to Israel and to Judah and to, to the Edomites over Moab? Well, we're going to find out. It's not always easy for God to make these kind of decisions, I suppose. But we're going to find out that Moab was even worse than Israel and uh, Jehoram. And so this was the plan that Elisha gave to them. He said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Start digging ditches. Now, that's going to require faith. When you're already out of water and you're already thirsty, about the last thing you want to do is dig just a nice long ditch. Because that's hard, thirsty work, especially in that part of the world. So it's going to require faith of them to do this. It's very interesting. God's going to do a miracle here. But it's fascinating. He makes sure that they have a part in it and then God has a part in it. So they each got a part in this miracle that God is going to perform. And it's fascinating in our lives how often God works things out where he will not do what we can do. He'll only do what only he can do in the situation. Otherwise, he would just develop very, very weak children if he just did all of the heavy lifting and all of the uh, doing and we didn't invest some faith into the situation. And so that's what they did. It took faith now to obey the making this valley full of ditches. We're not even talking about one, but as many as can be dug. For thus says the Lord, you're going to see wind. You will not see wind. You shall not see rain. I'm not going to fill these ditches with rainwater yet that of a storm right in that area. Yet that valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And also you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, cut down every good tree, stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones there in Moab. They were to basically set uh, Moab back a number of years economically from being able to again uh, create mischief uh, for the children of Israel. And so God said, I'm going to supply you with water. But it's not going to don't be looking for rain. You need to dig these ditches and I'm going to make uh, water arrive here uh, for you supernaturally uh, in the in, in the way that he's going to choose. Now, it what happened, uh, it happened in the morning. Verse 20, when the grain offering was offered, that's first thing in the morning, that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. So this is God's ability to control everything. He causes a storm to pour out an immense amount of rain over in Edom. And it's fascinating. You go to Israel today and you drive down into the area of the Dead Sea 
And they get rain there about two days a year. But when they get rain, you don't want to be on those roads. The water just comes flying down these wadis and it's liable to wash away roads and wash away anything in its way. Just got huge amounts of water. The land isn't, can't saturate it and it just begins to flow in, in a almost a, absolutely a dangerous kind of way. So he's got this water that rainstorm happens over here and it then goes down into these underground streams, begins to move on the top of the ground level, comes down into this area that they're in. And without a storm, it completely fills all of the holes with water. So now they've got water. But the Moabites don't know what's happened. They don't know that a storm has come in and supplied them with water. And so when all of the Moabites heard that the kings had come to fight against them and all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered and they stood at the border. So they're ready for the fight. And then they rose up early in the morning. And as the sun is shining there in that early morning sunrise and the kind of reddish and all the sun was shining and reflecting off of the water, but they didn't know it was water because they didn't. There was no storm. There was no rain that they knew of. And the Moabites, when they looked at that water uh, from their vantage point with the sunrise, it looked as if there was just blood all over the place. It, the, the water on the other side, they saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And this was their conclusion. This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So it wasn't unusual for kind of loose alliances in those days. Sometimes kings didn't really like one another, yet they would fight with one another because they disliked somebody even more. But then someone would kill somebody's camel or something in the camp. And now all of this and you've got a a bloodbath on your hands. And so there wasn't unusual. And so they look at it and they say, all right, they've all killed one another. The whole camp is laid open to us uh, with uh, to simply to uh, spoil and take all of the goods. And so uh, apparently they either sheaf all their weapons or they throw them down. So rather going into the camp uh, with some kind of military discipline or precision, and saying, well, we better make sure that this isn't an ambush or something like that. They they just uh, put all their weapons away and they just run in uh, into the camp just like a big, greedy mob. Remember the Xboxes or whatever they were for sale at Walmart or whatever, and people got trampled to death, that kind of thing. They're just heading into, I mean, no, I, I mean, no military alertness at all. And so they come rolling in here in their greed. And that, so when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel, who was lying in wait, rose up, attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them. And uh, they entered, not only defeated them there in that place, but they then entered into the land of Moab, killing the Moabites there. And then they destroyed the cities and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. They stopped up all of the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Kir uh, Haraseth intact, which was a major city there. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So they did try to take it, but they were unable to take it. And then and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, 
He's uh, found refuge there in that city. He took with him 700 men who drew swords uh, and he tried to break through to the king of Edom. So he considered that the weaker of the three kings tried to uh, defeat them, break on out and to be able to escape uh, the encirclement. But they couldn't do it. And so here is he is. He's trapped in this city. And so he took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place and he offered him as a burnt offering, just killed him and then burned his body right up on the top of the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And so they departed from him and returned to their own land. So in those days in the pagan cultures, uh, most often when there was a, uh, a defeat, a military defeat, they considered that to be a sign that their God was upset with them uh, for some reason. And so thinking that his God, which was Chemosh, was upset with him, he decided that he would offer to Chemosh uh, the greatest thing that he had, which was his eldest son. So he offered him as a human sacrifice on the top uh, of the city wall. And so here we have the answer to why the Lord wanted to defeat uh, the Moabites when uh, the northern kingdom of Israel really wasn't. Uh, you know, that much better, but they were better than than this. And so Israel was bad. These folks were much more uh, evil. It appears that when he offered his son and as all of the soldiers are down there, uh, the, uh, the, the children of Israel and those of Edom, and they look and they watch what this guy is doing before their own eyes. He kills his son and then he burns him as a burnt offering there on the wall. It so disgusted them uh, that they became displeased with uh, the king of Israel uh, and, and then they just left the battlefield. It was like, how, you, how have you, what kind of a battle have you drawn us into? What kind of a, uh, a war have you drawn us into to fight people who would do this kind of thing? And so they were uh, righteously disgusted by what they saw and they simply left uh, off the battle and uh, and and went home on their uh, back home on their way. When we uh, look at all of these miracles that the Lord did for Israel, I mean, first through Elijah, and then now through Elisha, and uh, that they did for Israel and for her kings. You think about all of the revelation that God had communicated to them over and over and over again, showing himself to be the true and the living God. And yet they remained committed to their sin and to their false gods and remained unbelieving uh, toward the Lord all the way uh, to the end. So they just continued to sin in the face of great, great revelation and great, great light that God was offering to them. The fact of the matter is that we will only accept and recognize God's revelation to the degree that we are willing to. And I'm convinced that one day when each person, even before that white throne judgment, which is a judgment of condemnation before being cast into an eternal lake of fire, that one day at, at that place, if God so desires there, but he could readily and perhaps will reveal all of the revelation and attempts that he made to reach every single person 
And how much light and how much grace and how much revelation was sinned against and ignored for a person to end up in, in that place of now being judged for eternity. And you think about uh, today, I think so often about some people that have these great, great minds and their great, great intellects. And here they are, they can... Uh, impartially master all kinds of subjects in life, but you get them on the subject of the Bible or the subject of the God of the Bible, and it's amazing how they refuse to accept God's revelation. And the reason that they refuse to believe or to learn the lessons of God's revelation is because they don't want to. One day, Before the Lord, nobody is going to be able to say, you know, I had these intellectual problems about this and that, and I couldn't quite figure the whole thing out. And though I would have become a Christian if I could have just, if there had been a little more revelation, a little more insight, all of that will be shown to be false. That every single person who has rejected God and his revelation and his truth will have done so because they did not want to accept it and to believe it. And why would a person not want to accept God's revelation? Because then you've got to acknowledge him as God. And if he really is the God that he declares himself to be, now I need to obey him and submit to him. And as we talked about this morning, then it comes all the way back around to am I willing to give up my sin and my selfishness in order to follow this God That's what it comes down to. It's always an issue of the will. And why is and and to find out in that person what is going on as it relates to your will and what is it that you're unwilling to give up in order to acknowledge the Lord for who he is. Now, a certain man, a certain woman of the wives, chapter four of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is now coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So her husband's a very godly man. Now remember, this is up in the northern kingdom of Israel. This whole place is is absolute apostasy. It's just wickedness. And here's a guy who's living for God in the middle of all of that. You can do that. So he's living for God, but he dies. We don't know how he dies or why he dies, but he dies and he is in some kind of of a debt. And so she is in this very difficult situation, no fault of her own. She's lost her husband to debt. Now she's about to lose her sons to the creditor. In the law of Moses, if a Jew incurred a debt that he owed to another Jew, He could be made a servant to then pay off that debt. And once he paid off the debt, he was then freed. Apparently, they began to interpret that law to say that if a father incurred a debt, that you could then take his sons as captive as servants as well in the case of his death and then make them work off the debt. And so she's about to lose everything. Nobody was in a more vulnerable position in the ancient world than to be a, uh, a widow and a mother. So that, that was a tough place to be, and that's exactly where she is 
And she's, her whole world is, is falling apart in the death of her husband. And so Elisha said to her, what, what shall I do for you? This is Elisha. He's a people guy. This, what can I do for you here? He said, tell me, what, you, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Wow. That's a pretty empty house. So she's got this little jar of oil. And guys, don't think about cars or trucks. This is olive oil. And so he said to her, go borrow vessels, pots, pans, glass. I mean, anything like glass, but anything you can, any vessel you can get from all of your neighbors. I mean, to clear out the whole neighborhood of every empty vessel you can get. Don't gather just a few. And when you have come in, into your house, you shut the door behind you and your sons and then pour it into those vessels and set aside the full ones. Just start pouring that oil out. So this, again, it requires faith on her part to go out and to do this. How can I borrow every empty vessel you have in your house? Sure. Can you tell me what? No, I can't tell you. But she gets all of them in the neighborhood, brings them into the house. Elisha tells her, now you do that in the house just between you and God. Because he doesn't want to get in the middle of all of this. And she's going to think, well, Elisha did it. This is just between her and God. And he wants her to ascribe the miracle completely to the Lord. And so she went in and she shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her. And she just starts pouring it out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. How many times do you think she said, bring me another vessel, bring me another vessel, bring me another vessel. And then finally he says to her at the end, there's not another vessel. They're all full of oil now, which was very valuable. And so the oil ceased. Now, isn't that interesting now? One of the things I I love about the miracle of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is that after he feeds the 5,000 men, with the five loaves and the two fish, he has the disciples go out with the baskets and collect all the remnants. And you can look at it in the way of consumerism or whatever and say, Jesus, what are you doing sending and going to pick up all the remnants of the miracle? I mean, you can do this again tomorrow and the day after and the day after. What are we picking up remnants for? I mean, it's nothing for you. He doesn't waste. He never wastes. And when all of those vessels were full, that vial of hers didn't just keep chugging out, you know, like a broken gas pump or something. It was done and he stopped. And it always encourages me in my service to the Lord. And I I should encourage all of us that the Lord never, ever wastes anything that belongs to him. He knows how to use it and to get full use out of it. And that's a great encouragement to us, I think. And so here it is, came to the last one, the oil ceased. And then she came and she told the man of God. And he said, all right, here's what you do from here. You go, sell that oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons live on all of the rest. And so here God took care of the debt, then took care of her and, and, and into the foreseeable uh, future. I think you have a a great, on a very practical level, a great, great encouragement from the Old Testament of how God will 
supernaturally if necessary, though I consider every meal to be a miracle. But God's ability, if we find ourselves as his children in the center of terrible apostasy and the grave consequences that come upon a nation as a result of that, that God will resort to any miracle he needs to resort to in order to be faithful to his promises to us. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory, the Bible says. And he will do that. And here is a beautiful example of that and how he does that. So often it's him touching somebody's heart to deliver a bag of groceries or to hand a check. That goes on all of the time, all the time in the body of Christ as the Lord just supernaturally provides in the middle of difficulty. Now, it happened one day that Elisha uh, went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman. So here's a woman at the other end of the uh, socioeconomic uh, scale of things. She was prominent and probably had uh, some amount of wealth. And uh, so there was this notable woman there, and she persuaded him to eat some food. And so it was as often as he passed by with his servant Gehazi, he would turn in there to eat some food with this woman and with her husband. He, like all, like the prophets of that, that time, many of them, Samuel, it was certainly characteristic of him, they would run a circuit where they would spend some time in Bethel and then they would go to the next city and the next city and the next city and the next city in a circuit around uh, to meet with the young students that were in the school of the prophets or to judge cases that needed to be judged in the city and all. And she recognizes, hey, this prophet is doing a good thing. And, and this is not a, an easy thing that he's doing. And so uh, she, she and her husband started inviting him in for a meal uh, to eat as an, as an encouragement to them. And so, but she, she's, <clears throat> she's godly and uh, her thoughts go even further for blessing him. And she said to her husband, look now, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. And please let us make a small upper room on the wall of our house and let us put a bed in there for uh, for him in there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. That sounds nice. And so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can not only have a meal but he and his servant can sleep there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and he lay down there. And so all of this was arranged and it was waiting for him. And and uh, so uh, so it was provided for him. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, he said, call the Shunammite woman. And uh, when he had called her, she came and stood before the prophet. And he said to him, uh, and he said uh, to uh, Gehazi, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all of this care. Now, what can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And his gifting had given him access to these kind of people. 
And so she answered, I dwell among my own people. I'm I'm content. I live a quiet life. And if I need anything, I don't need high officials to take care of me. My own tribe and my own family will will take care of me. And so he said, as, as she evidently had left at that point, he said, what then is to be done for her? Still, he's determined to bless her. And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. Ah, okay, we're talking about a God thing here. Now, in that ancient world, because God had given promises of, um, you know, good birth rates and these kind of things in the promised land and obedience to the Lord, that when a woman was barren, did not have a child, that the children of Israel and people do the same thing today related to sicknesses or other things, too. But the children of Israel took it beyond what God had said was true. And they said, this person is barren because there must be something wrong in her life. It was they viewed it as a sign of God's disfavor. So she not only did people in that day deal then with the heartbreak of not having a child, which was a very big thing to a Jew. Everyone wanted to have their name to be perpetuated in the history of Israel and maybe for the Messiah to come through their bloodline. So this was a big thing to be barren. And then now, evidently, her husband is so old that uh, there's no chance that that any kind of conception is going uh, going to occur as a result. And so this is in a, in an impossibility that she would have a child. And so Gehazi mentioned, listen, if you want to know her heart of hearts, uh, a child would be the thing. And so he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Now, you put yourself in her shoes. We don't really have to because she's going to find out in one more sentence here what she does. But I mean, you think about those words being spoken by the prophet to her. And her response was, she said, no, my Lord. I mean, it's just like it just, she, those, she hit those words. Those words hit her. And it was just like, don't don't say that to me. Man of God. Don't lie to your maidservant. Don't make fun of me. Don't give me false hope. I hope, in essence, hope for years and years and years that I'd be able to hold a son. And, and I, I've settled that with God. I'm settled with the fact that I'm not going to have a son. I'm okay with that. And then you come along, and now you're going to uh, light that hope up in, in my heart again. Don't, don't be saying these these kinds of things and getting my hopes raised up and then to find them crushed once again. I, it, it, it's not worth the aggravation. But the woman conceived and she bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. And so his word came to pass, just like all God's word comes to pass. And the child grew and it happened one day that the boy went out to his father to the reapers. So they're harvesting. So he might be seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And here he's going to go to work with dad and all of the other men because they're going to bring this harvest in they've worked all year for. And the boy's going to go out with the men and he's going to be a part of it. 
And then he said to his father in the course of the day, my head, my head. And for the, those of us who have children, I mean, we, we know he's this boy, my head, my head. And might be having an aneurysm, might be having sunstroke. Uh, something's going on with this crushing pain in his head. And so the father said to a servant, carry him to his mother. Take him into, get him out of this intense situation and the work situation and, and take him in, in, to the comfort of his mother's arms. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon. You could just see her wrapping him up in her arms, trying to comfort him with that whatever this head thing was that was beyond her ability to to change or to treat. And then the boy died in her arms. And she went up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God, took him up into Elisha's room that had been prepared, put him on his bed, shut the door upon him and went out. Probably the reason that she did that is she wants to keep the death of the boy a secret for a time. Doesn't want the father to know about it. And uh, uh, just before she gets to attempt to address this thing uh, with Elisha. So uh, she, so puts him up in that room. And then she called for to her husband and said, please send me one of the young men, one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. It's not a church day. It's not, you know, a a day like that. And she said, it is well. So he's confused about why she wants to race off at this moment to go see the prophet. And so he thinks it's strange and and not being a religious holiday. But he makes arrangements for the transportation. And when she says to him, all is well, he's trying to she's trying to she doesn't want to get bogged down into a big scene there at the house by breaking the news to the father. Uh, She wants to get going and and not have any kind of delay to getting to Elisha. Doesn't want to grieve him unnecessarily because she has hope that the boy will be raised from the dead. And so um, uh, she saddled a donkey, said to her servant, drive and go forward and do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. Don't worry about me being an older lady and a mom and that whole thing. I want to redline it on this donkey. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel, about 15 miles away. And so it was when the man of God saw her afar off. So he's looking out there and he said to his servant Gehazi, he said, look, the Shunammite woman didn't expect it. Please, you go run out now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And so Gehazi is a younger man, so he can run out there and get the news faster than Elisha can. And so he comes out, poses all of those questions, and she answered, uh, it is well. Again, she doesn't want to... uh, be delayed by giving some long explanation to Gehazi, who she doesn't want to deal with anyway. So when she came to the man of God at the hills, she caught him by the feet, just lunges herself down at his feet. Gehazi, he's kind of a bodyguard in this sense, too. He came near to push her away, thinks that, you know, this all of this is inappropriate. But the man of God said, let her alone. 
for her soul is in deep distress. This is the heart of Elisha. This is the this is the kind of man he is. Her soul is in deep distress. And then notice this. And the Lord has hidden it from me and he has not told me. He was in, and I don't say this to say this should be true of every one of our lives because it's a different calling that he had. But he was so in tune with the Lord and how the Lord was using him, giving him revelation, that he was surprised when he didn't receive revelation concerning a situation ahead of time. I'm thrilled to know once every ten years, and then I'm impossible to live with for five years, I'm glad you enjoyed that. We enjoyed you enjoying that. And she said to him, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And immediately Elisha realizes something has happened to the boy. And she's coming back and, you know, the old saying, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. She doesn't believe that. She believes it would have been better never to have had a son than to have a son and have him die on me this young. So that's her complaint that she's lifting up. You, this great gift was given to me. I never asked for that child. Now my whole life is built around that child. And now the child is taken away from me. And so Elisha understands the difficulty of her heart. And so he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand. And the staff of a prophet was the symbol of his authority. And be on your way. Again, he's younger. Make a beeline, 15 miles. Get to that place. Don't meet anyone. Don't talk to anyone. Don't greet anyone. If anyone greets you, hey, Gehazi, come in for a cup of coffee. What do you want? How are you? Is your family? Don't answer him. And then when you get there, lay my staff on the face of the child. That's the instruction that's given. The mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so he arose and then followed her. This is a quick determination. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and he did as he was instructed. and He laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. And therefore, he went back to meet Elisha as they're still approaching the home and told him, saying, the child has not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, there was the child laying dead. On his bed. And he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, the mother and Gehazi outside, and he began to pray to the Lord. You can bet that he did. Hmm. What do I do here? Maybe even what I don't understand. Why the gift of a child and then here in this situation? What are you up to? What's going on in this scene? What do you want to do here? And he begins to pray. And then as a result of prayer, 
He went up and he lay on the child as the body was laid out. He laid his body right out on top of the child and he put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm as an impact of the action that God had called him to do. And so he returned and he began to walk back and forth once again in the house no doubt praying and all of it. And again he went up and he stretched himself out on the boy. And then the child sneezed seven times. That's a sign of life, isn't it? Don't ever complain about a sneeze attack. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. And so he called her, and when she came into him, he said, pick up your son. And so she went in, she fell at his feet in just respect of his office and what God had used him to do. And she and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her boy and she took him out of the room. Beautiful, beautiful uh, miracle. And then Elisha returned to Gilgal. And there, God's authority over life and death. I mean, the pinnacle example of that, of course, in the New Testament, in the life, in the ministry of Jesus, raising people from the dead, but also in his own resurrection. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. So that always translated into scarcity related to food. Now, the sons of the prophets, and apparently he was in Gilgal to kind of teach and give instruction to these young prophets. And he's investing his life in, even though the land is apostate, investing his life in young men who wanted to be used by God. And uh, boy, they paid a real price to be used by God in that environment. But they wanted to be, and so he poured his life into them. And so they were sitting before him, receiving instruction throughout the day. And so then... Time to eat at the end of the day, he said to his servant Gehazi, put on the large pot, so lots of them, and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Nothing like a nice big bowl of stew at the end of that kind of a day. And so they went out into the field. The problem is you just didn't have potatoes and carrots and all this stuff because of the famine. So they went out into the field to gather herbs and they found a wild vine. And they gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and they came and they sliced them into the pot of stew. And so they said, well, what do you think about this? Do you recognize this from any of your culinary? What would the iron chef do with this? I don't know. We're in a famine. It looks like we can eat it. Add it to the stew. And so that's what they did. They didn't know what they were adding. And then they served it to the men to eat. And it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there's death in the pot. Never say that when your meal is served to you in a high-scale restaurant or when you've been invited over to dinner at somebody else's house. Honey, there's death in the pot. So evidently, some of them began to have a violent reaction, physical reaction as a result of those wild gourds that had been added, and they couldn't eat it. And so Elisha said, then bring me some flour. And so he put it into the pot, and he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. 
and there was nothing harmful in the pot. And so, again, God's miraculous provision of food in a time of famine for his people. God's going to take care of his people, even if he has to do a miracle to do it. He's going to take care of his people. And then a man came from Baal uh, Shalisha. And he brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. Now, according to the law of Moses, you would give the first fruit of your crops and of your wealth uh, to the Lord. You would tithe to the Lord. And that money was then used to support the priests and the priesthood and the temple and the tabernacle and all of these things. And uh, so but since all of the priests are apostate in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's got this resources that he wants to give to the Lord. And the only one that he really knows is walking with the Lord. Uh, You know, the most famous of them that he knows is here is Elisha. So he brings this offering to the Lord to give it to him in order to feed uh, evidently these young men in this school of, of the prophets. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. And his servant Gehazi said, what shall I set this before 100 men? Now, when you talk about 20 loaves of barley bread, we think about loaves. We think about a French bakery, you know, where a loaf comes out and it's like this. In those days, a loaf was like this. We would call it a bun. Now, that's a bun. This is a loaf. We could feed a hundred with 20 loaves. We can't feed a hundred with 20 buns. So that's what they're dealing with. So but here it is. He's been given instruction by the Lord to give it to the people. And so he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. And so he said it before them. And they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And so, of course, this reminds us of Jesus, the two times as he fed uh, the multitudes uh, with the bread. And so this uh, miracle as an uh, just uh, an example from the Old Testament. God's the same yesterday, today and forever. And so uh, something that came out of uh, uh, Old Testament just as well as in the New Testament. So you have here. um, uh, um, Well, I'll let that that thought go. Uh, And uh, rightfully so. So you've got as a whole uh, chapter four stresses God's power to provide for those who trust in him. In the midst of terrible poverty in the midst of great apostasy might be around us in the midst of death and in the midst of famine. But all was supposed to be the God that was over nature and to supply all of these things. And he couldn't control the weather. And God steps in and he is encouraging his people. And there's always a remnant. There was even a remnant continuing in the northern in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was encouraging them that in the fact that they were his children and he was going to keep his promises to them, whatever the circumstances might become in the world around them. And that is true of us. 
And it's wonderful to be reminded of that. Sometimes we can look and say we can be in the circumstance ourselves tonight or we can look and say it would be real easy for this to go sideways over here, this thing to go over here. And I'm absolutely destitute as much as that widow was with the debt and my children and what's going to happen. And God steps in and, and gives us these examples in the Old Testament and in the Bible to encourage us. His reputation is at stake in the keeping of his promises. He will never let even one of our lives ever contradict his word, even in one circumstance in our life, because it would mean that he's a liar. And the Bible says not only does he not lie, he cannot lie. God is going to take care of us. Whatever miracle he has to do, whatever the supernatural he has to do, he will do that to take care of us. Let's stand together and we'll pray.